Uh, in the midweek email uh, this past week, which by the way, if you don't get the midweek email, you can subscribe to it. If you go to the church's website, I think there's a button there you can hit and, um, and subscribe to the midweek email. It gives information. A lot of time, that's how we disseminate information within our church family, so I encourage you to go check that out. Uh, but also, uh, usually I give like sort of a preview of the message, and in the midweek email this past week, I was talking about choices and decisions, because the portion of Scripture that we're going to be studying this morning in the life of Abraham, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 13, it's kind of a case study in decision-making in some ways. Uh, some of you are undoubtedly wrestling with various decisions right now. Big decisions, medium size, small decisions. But according to a study cited in Psychology Today, human beings make an eye-popping 35,000 choices a day. That seems impossible to me given the amount of time I spend asleep. Like if you subtract those hours and you have only the wakeful hours left, 35,000, that's like a decision every two seconds. I don't know how they defined decisions in the study, but that's the number that they gave. Now, if that's true, then fellow human beings, you make somewhere between 12 and 13 million decisions a year. And multiply that over the span of a lifetime, and the total number of decisions that we make is truly staggering. Now, most of those decisions will be small and inconsequential. Like, which chair should I sit in? Or should I turn the volume down? Or what color Gatorade should I buy? Notice I didn't say what flavor Gatorade. I think they just have colors, not flavors exactly, right? <laughs> However, some decisions we make will be truly momentous. And sometimes we have a sense of the gravity of a choice as we are making it, but oftentimes we do not fully appreciate the far-reaching consequences of a choice until much, much later. One thing's for sure, though. Our choices that we make in these days powerfully shape our lives for good and for bad. So here's what we're going to do this morning. First thing we're going to do is walk through Genesis 13. I'll make some observations as we go. And then I want to wrap up things up by talking about what I think is the biggest, uh, kind of the biggest thing to see in the decisions that were made here in this chapter. So let's do that. Let's dive in. Chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Uh, we did skip a portion of Scripture at the tail end of chapter 12, if you're following along very closely. We're going to come back to that in another study Ahead, But uh, Abram and Sarai and all of their um, people and everything, they went down to Egypt for a while. But here in chapter 13, we pick things back up. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. 
so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Just stop here for a second. I think one of the things we have to see here is that the conflict that arises between Abram and Lot rises out of the fact that their possessions became great. Um, Great material abundance has been blessed upon Abram and Lot, and their conflict arises not from poverty, but from great abundance. There is great material abundance here. And uh, I believe, really and truly, that money, wealth, is morally neutral. I think in the Bible we find examples of very virtuous, wealthy people and desperately wicked, wealthy people. And we find very wealthy, uh, very virtuous, poor people and very wicked, poor people. Um, What we need to see is that both poverty and prosperity are a trial, a test. All of the trials that we experience in life will fall into one of these two categories. There's poverty and prosperity. Either you have too little or too much of a thing. And in either case, it's a test. If you have too little, you might be tempted towards covetousness or bitterness. And if you have too much, then you might be tempted toward a fat-hearted trust in your material and abundance, an idolatrous impulse to hoard You might tear down barns and build bigger ones and have a callous disregard for the needy. Like all trials, these trials are allowed to enter our lives to reveal and to refine. They reveal what is there, how we really are, what we really think, what we really cherish. And they refine, which is to say that they take what's there and make it deeper and more true. So I would submit to you that when great material abundance is visited on Abram and Lot, this did not create conflict so much as it had the effect of revealing some things about these two men. It had the the effect of revealing their character and refining it. There's one sentence in here, and I think on previous Sundays I've pointed this out, Uh, Years ago, I was living and working at Camp Maranatha in Southern California, and during the summertime, we would host sometimes as many as like 20 young people for the whole summer. It was like this 24-hour youth group with an emphasis on service, and we would do Bible studies, and they would work in the kitchen and on the grounds, and we would have these 20 young people, sometimes from all over the world. I remember one summer, we had like four kids from Germany, another... Summer, we had a girl come from Japan, and they came from all over the country, and we just shoved all these kids into very small housing, (laughs) and then they worked and lived together 24 hours a day. What could possibly go wrong, right? And we would always, every summer, have some pretty dramatic conflict at times, where they would just have a hard time getting along as the summer went on. And one of the passages I would always share with those young people is this line. Um, In the verses up to this point, it's been describing this conflict that's brewing. 
In the verses that come, it's going to describe the solution to the conflict, but then there's one sentence in the middle that's so important. It's this. Well, after verse 7, it says, There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And then comes the sentence, At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. I was reading one commentary about this line, and that commentator on the Bible said that the, this line is evidence of the fact that Abram was concerned for their safety, that as they started to fight, um, the, the reason why it's significant that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land was because they were watching, and if they saw disunity between him and Lot or some sort of a a crack in the facade, then they would view them as vulnerable to attack. And they were very wealthy, so they could be raided, perhaps. I disagree because the solution, as we'll see in a minute, Abram says, hey, let's part company, <laughs> which that, that, that doesn't make any sense. If you're worried about being attacked, you don't say we should split up because that would make them less numerous, more vulnerable. For their mutual security, it would have been better to stay together and find strength in numbers. But here's why I think this verse is so, this one sentence is so significant. Abram and Lot were followers of the one true God. And by saying there were Canaanites and Perizzites in the land, it's saying that these non-believers were looking on and drawing conclusions about the God Abram worshipped based on their conduct toward one another, him and Lot. I actually think it would have been better if Lot and Abram could have found a way to stay together in peace and unity. I think that would have been what was closest to God's heart. But it was better for them to part company than to continue as they were, misrepresenting the character and nature of their God through their fighting. So Abram was so zealous for God's glory that he sought to resolve the conflict quickly and generously with Lot so that he would do no further harm to God's reputation. When it says the Canaanites and Perizzites were in the land, I think what it's saying is people are watching <laughs> and they're making a conclusion about God based on the conduct of God's people. So I would take this verse to my young people at Camp Maranatha, and I would say, there are campers in the land. <laughs> and in our service together, more important than getting the meal out on time, more important than getting the camp clean, spick and span every week, is that we do it in a way that represents God well, that we love one another in the doing of it, that we represent God's character toward one another that we see in our vertical relationship with God. Now, brothers and sisters, we live, this is the understatement of a century, <laughs> we live in an incredibly divided land, on an incredibly divided planet. We do not have time to list all the many ways that we human beings are separated and walled off from one another. Men and women, black and white, haves and have-nots, Republicans and Democrats, 
old and young, educated and uneducated, outgoing and reserved? Are you in the majority? Are you in the minority? We have different tribes, ethnicities, cultures and languages, white collar, blue collar. We've got it all. Guys, we could keep going forever and ever and ever, and these shades of difference are significant. In this fallen world, divisions are commonplace. They are deep, and they are altogether natural. But guys, the church is a place where what is supernatural is meant to be made visible, not what's natural. Brokenness is natural. But the kind of unity that Jesus has called us to is miraculous and supernatural. The church is a place where people who are different from one another come and agree (laughs) on the excellence and the necessity of the gospel, on the fact that God is. And that his character is good and should be lived out in our lives. The church is a place where Hatfields and McCoys, Montagues and Capulets shake hands and worship together. And the watching world looks on and their unbelief is confronted by such supernatural evidence of God's reconciling power. The fact that dissimilar people are drawn into unity around God is proof that God is bigger than those things. That there is something higher and more excellent than all that we as human beings tend to attach great weight and significance to. God is real. And our unity is, in Scripture, presented as one of the most important proofs of His realness. And so I believe Abram was aware of the fishbowl reality that there were Canaanites and Perizzites in the land. And he and Lot together were misrepresenting that God. And so zealous for God's glory, he very quickly called Lot to himself and said, let's settle this quickly. (laughs) I'll be generous. I'll even do this to my own hurt, is essentially what happens. Before we move on from that thought, though, A question I think that's worth asking is, who are the Canaanites and Perizzites that are watching in your life? Uh, Moms and dads, your children might be Canaanites and Perizzites. Not parasites. Don't don't hear me. (laughs) They might be that also. (laughs) (laughs) I mean Perizzites with a Z. In your workplace, in your communities... There are many different uh, areas of life where this principle should be taken into consideration. When we are living together as believers, our main goal is to image God forth. When the Bible says that you're made in the image of God, part of the meaning of that is that God is imaged forth through you. You're His image bearers. In the midst of creation, we exist to make Him visible. It's part of the analogy of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, we're his body, which means he's made visible through us, his body. 
So this is not a small matter or something, a small or trivial part of this story. Uh, at At the center of this conflict is the fact that Abram was concerned for the glory of God in the way it was lived out among God's people. We'll pick it up here. Then in verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, but betwe- and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the, the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord." So I believe, again, for God's glory, Abram sought to resolve this conflict very quickly and generously. He gives Lot the pick of the land. And verse 10 tells us, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was awesome. (laughs) He's looking at it through um, the agrarian sensibilities of that time. It just looks like money down there. Wealth in those days is different than in our own days, right? If you're very wealthy, you don't carry your wealth on your person 24 hours a day. It's tied up in banks or investments or a building somewhere. But in Abraham's day, your wealth was measured in animals and people. It was vast, noisy, smelly, hungry, thirsty, And Abraham traveled with his wealth in this vast, sprawling, essentially ranching empire. And so as Lot looked out and saw the valley out towards Sodom and it's well watered, it says like the garden of the Lord, like Eden. To me, that's a really critical line as well. I'll come back to that in a second. It, it, he says it's, it's beautiful in two ways that hearken back. Lot looks out over the land and he says it's like the Garden of Eden, which has been lost. And it looks like Egypt, 
which he was just living in until Uncle Abram said, we have to leave. And so part of what Lot is doing is in his heart, he is, in his spirit, he is sort of casting back with a longing for what was lost. And here he sees it can be regained. That looks great down there. I'll take that. From their vantage point, Lot saw the fertile land before him, and he wanted it. So he went east. He settled near Sodom, a bit of foreshadowing, where the author of Genesis hints at what is to come, saying, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. None of us can blame Lot for the decision that he made. Really hard to, anyway. It was near the cities. It was fertile. It was well-watered. It was perfect for raising a flock. It held prospects to make him even wealthier because there would be an abundance of people and traders. He chose the obvious place. <coughs> David Macklemore, in his commentary on this, says this, "'There is more to Lot's choice than the obvious, however.'" Lot wasn't just going to the place that looked the best. Something spiritual was going on. He was going to the place that touched a spiritual nerve, a sense of longing, a homesickness. Lot wanted good land, yes, but deeper than that, he wanted the Garden of Eden. He wanted paradise. We all do. The question this passage forces us to ask is this, where is paradise to be found in this fallen world? When Lot goes east, he's doing what we all do naturally. He's searching for the thing that will make his life matter. Abram, however, gave that up. Abram saw the same land. He could have taken it. Instead, he gave Lot the first choice. (coughs) He must have known what Lot would choose. In giving Lot first dibs, Abram was taking the land of Canaan. And why did he do that? Because Abram knew the land of Canaan was the promised land, even if it looked less than promising. Lot was trying to get back into the garden. Abram knew he was already there. Derek Kidner says, Lot, choosing the things that are seen, found them corrupt and insecure, choosing selfishly. He was to grow ever more isolated and unloved. Abram, on the other hand, found liberation. Okay. So those are the thoughts of David Macklemore, and I found myself really finding that a helpful way to understand this moment, this choice. Uh, We live in a world filled with the tension between choosing what is seen and what is not, and what will we choose? The contrast between Abram and Lot instructs us on the nature of trusting God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And when it says that Lot looked and saw, it's shown to us that he is a man who is walking by sight, not by faith. You cannot have God without letting go of the world. And you cannot embrace the world without letting go of God. As the scripture says, 
You cannot be a friend of God and a friend of the world both. Uh, One of the things that, one of the scriptures that came to mind at this moment is Psalm 73, verses 2 through 5. It says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. That's Psalm 73. The psalmist is looking out on the world, and he sees the wicked amassing wealth and living a life of health and ease and prosperity. And the question comes, maybe I've blown it. Maybe I've missed out on something. In our own day, we see the wicked prospering, and we might be tempted like the psalmist to question God's justice. We might even begin to feel envious of that wealth also. This is a danger, because we might take our eyes off God as our treasure and our portion forever and set our hearts and hopes instead on the desires of the flesh and of the eyes and of the pride of life. Psalm 73 uh, continues with these words. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. I don't think Lot could have known when he made this choice what would happen. And we're going to get to that part of the story in the days ahead. But Lot, in moving towards Sodom would enter into a portion of his story that is incredibly dark and painful. Difficult even to talk about. I don't think Lot had any sense of that, but what I do know is that in this moment, he was not motivated by what he knew of God's promises, but simply by what he saw with his eyes and wanted. And fellow Christian, I think the challenge before us is this. This world is, in many ways, very tempting. And when we're called as a people to walk by faith and not by sight, we have to possess a willingness in the pursuit of what God has called us to, to not spend all of our passions and our time and money and things on the things of this world. I really do believe that it boils down to this. Lot tried to find a shortcut to the garden, to paradise. It reminds me of that moment when Satan tempted Jesus. It says in Luke chapter 4, the devil took him, that being Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. 
If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar to Lot and Abram looking out over the land and saying, Lot, what will you choose? The land God has promised or this valley? It's a similar decision. And Jesus and Abram refused to take a shortcut to the kingdom of God. Jesus wouldn't take it, and neither did Abram. Instead, they believed the word of God and placed all their hope on that sufficient promise. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, said Jesus to Satan. And like Jesus, Abram's response was worship. (coughs) There was an altar in Hebron that he built to bear witness to that. So in in closing, just the final thought here on this decision is this. Um, When we're looking at the decision of Abram and Lot, Abram believed God in his promises. And Lot, betrayed by his decision, that he put his hope in this world. I think there's a lot here that's revealed in this decision. And eventually that would bear uh, fruit in catastrophic sin. Uh, I'm not going to get into all the details just now, but I think one of the most hopeful things to draw out of the story of Lot has to do with Ruth. Do you remember, the? if you know your Bibles, Ruth is uh, a direct descendant of... Uh, I'm sorry, an ancestor of Jesus, not a descendant. She's mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Christ's family. It's one of the four women that are listed there. Uh, Her story is one known to many of us. It's an incredible story of faith and following God, bravery, courage. The Bible tells us that Ruth was a Moabitess. And the Moabites... One of the sons of Lot, born through his incestuous union with his daughter, was named Moab. Even this wayful wandering that Lot entered into, this catastrophically sinful decision, Jesus redeemed it. We see this very pointedly in the person of Ruth, the Moabitess, the descendant of Lot, who's brought into the very bloodline of the Messiah. In describing the wayward, wrong-headed decision-making of Lot, I want us all to know that whenever that's proclaimed from a Christian pulpit, it's not just to say, look how wicked and wrong that is. (laughs) is to say, let's look at the amazing God who redeemed it. Jesus is such a one as takes every wrong, wayward, broken impulse of humanity and has redeemed it. He takes what's broken and he makes it whole. He takes what's wrong and he makes it right. He took all that wandered and brings it home. And in Lot's going down and choosing something apart from God, 
in Ruth the Moabitess, we see that brought home. And incredibly, that's who God chose to forward the line of the Messiah through, was a daughter of Lot. It's an amazing fact. And so maybe as over the course of our study this morning, God has kind of brought it home to your heart that you have been choosing the things of the world over the things of the kingdom. You have been looking at decisions in front of you and not thinking about who God is in the midst of those decisions at all, his righteous commands and how you should be living your life what obedience would require. That's not factoring. It hasn't been factoring in, and you're feeling convicted about that. I want you to know God does not look upon you and say, you're hopeless, you're outside of my will, and now you must live in the consequences of it. No, Ruth is proof that he is a redeemer God who redeemed even the line of Lot. And you can come home. You can repent and change and, make, and choose a different course for your life. So I think that's kind of the main, the main point to end on here this morning. Let me pray and invite the worship team to come up for another song. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for redeeming us. Father, here in this study of Genesis 13 this morning, we see two men, one who walked by faith and one who walked by sight. But God, over and above the stories of these two men is the story of you, the God who redeemed both of them. Father, none of us are like you. Father, we thank you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you have given us some ability to walk with you by faith. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would grow that more and more in each of us. Father, grant us the humility to repent when we're in the midst of decisions and the consequences of decisions where we were walking by sight, not by faith in you. Father, there are many times where we're tempted to take a shortcut, as Lot was. But God, the path towards a blessed happiness is found through obedience. And so, God, I pray, Lord, you would help us to be aware of your righteous commands and give us the capacity to follow you for our own joy and for the blessing of others. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.